This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler, and we are talking Mule Deer from a unique location this week. We are at the North American Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference. And I'm Steve Belinda, and today we're going to be talking the great state of Nevada. We have uh, Tony Wosley, who's the executive director of the Nevada Division of Wildlife. Department. Department, Department. of Wildlife. And we have the person who does most of the work on big game <laughs> in Nevada, Brian Wakeling, who's the game division manager. Welcome, gentlemen. Good Thank morning. you. We really appreciate you guys sitting down with us. It's a busy conference. So just to give a little bit of a background, the North American Wildlife Conference, Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference is over 100 years old. And it is the primary gathering point for state fish and wildlife agencies, NGOs, federal agencies. So all the state directors are here. Are they not, Tony? Yeah, most of them. Most uh, tremendous amount of turnover uh, this year. There was, uh, yes. A lot, of, a lot of gubernatorial elections out there. And uh, I think over half of the state wildlife agency directors will be turning over this year. So uh, a, a lot are here, uh, a lot of new ones, but there are some vacancies right now. Okay. And, and the point of the, the meeting is, is what? What, what, what happens at a, at a conference like this? Tremendous amount of communication and coordination. As, and as you indicated, uh, our federal partners, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, USGS, uh, park service, all of those federal agencies that we work with and coordinate with at, at varying degrees and various levels around the country are here. Uh, the non-governmental organizations, of course, Mule Deer Foundation, uh, but many of our other non-governmental organization partners, uh, including Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Turkey folks, uh, Boone and Crockett, just a tremendous breadth, uh, really a, a significant gathering of, of individuals who are engaged in one way or another in conservation around the country and, and the provinces as well. You know, and Tony, this year, uh, I've been coming to these for about 15 years now, and, you know, usually you see the old white guys, all friends of ours, people that look like me and Brian here, you know. Uh, you're a little bit younger, so we don't put you in that category yet. No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, but, do you know, this year I noticed there's a lot more women and a lot more younger folks here, and I know you gave a keynote on relevancy and diversity. Why don't you tell us a little bit what that keynote was about, what's going on in that world? That I know you've been working on a working group to try to get, you know, make sure that hunting and conservation stays relevant. Um, yeah, it's a it's a somewhat of an emerging um, field. I mean, it's it's been on the agenda. It's been one of the topics that has been regularly discussed. Um, you know, there's been a broader and broader recognition of the challenges in the participation levels, uh, you know, around hunting and, and public approval and support of, of hunting. And certainly in, in some states, it's, it's more of a challenge than others. But for us to continue to um, perhaps ignore it or, or not try to address it, um, probably wouldn't wouldn't end so well so there is a recognition that society's values towards wildlife are, are changing in some states and it's just an effort to acknowledge those changes and and develop some strategies and tactics to help people understand about the benefits that that hunters and anglers provide to conservation in this country and not convert everybody into a hunter or an angler but certainly uh, acquire achieve a broader 
societal awareness to the benefits of conservation, the importance of conservation. It seems to all of us who grew up in the outdoors and and conservation and hunting, fishing, but just any kind, bird watching, whatever it is, it seems self-evident that conservation is an important goal, an important priority. And and we do recognize that the state fish and wildlife agencies are the primary, um, those responsible for conservation. But there's a whole lot of the public that doesn't get that. And unless they understand that, your ability to do good good work for wildlife, all species of wildlife, fish, game, non-game, will be challenged in the future. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's really ultimately the, the problem. Whether we're talking about federal legislation or state legislation, uh, the, the money to do good things, certainly we've relied disproportionately on the funding that comes from uh, hunters and anglers, but uh, that's less and less sustainable as we, as we look to the future. And in competing uh, at state legislatures and, and on Capitol Hill, competing with uh, programs for education, uh, health and human services, you know, you know, corrections, those, those are the big three. Uh, if, if hunting and angling and conservation, uh, if there isn't the awareness, if it doesn't have the, the relevance that some of those other high high-level programs do, it's just going to be more and more difficult to, to get the laws and the funding that we need to continue to do good work on the ground. And when you guys do your job, I think <clears throat> a lot of folks may not realize that, you know, when, you, when they get clean water, the air they breathe, you know, we have to have healthy ecosystems and good rangelands and, uh, you know, be managing our wildlife populations properly for that to happen. I've often said if, if this country can catch on to the idea that there's seven degrees of separation from anyone in Kevin Bacon, we surely can convince folks that there's Isn't about that six degrees, uh, whatever, <laughs> uh, that we can convince folks that it's about three degrees between what we do in conservation and a personal benefit to them, whether it's going out bird watching, whether it's walking your dog in a park that's been funded through LWCF funds, whether it's having the ability to take a hunt education class and Brian coming out and, you know, coming to the, to your program and going out and, and trying to harvest uh, deer, elk, uh, and other species. And, you know, I, I think we just, I think we underestimate the public sometimes. And Tony, it's really, uh, it's great to hear you working on that because I know you're you can deliver a message and you're a go-getter on this stuff and I think there's good things coming there. There is a you you discuss something called a roadmap to relevancy is that that that's working with the Wildlife Management Institute and some other state agencies through what was the blue ribbon panel for fish and wildlife conservation is that correct is that something yeah. that's coming out soon? <clears throat> yeah, um, probably in the next 6 months we'll see a a usable product there and and this is really been about five years in in the making um, from the initial concept uh, idea being put out um, and that original recommendation um, came out of the blue ribbon panel that was assembled by the association of fish and wildlife agencies the national organization and it was co-chaired by bass pro shops uh, president founder uh, Johnny Morris and former Wyoming governor Dave Friedenthal and they made a very specific recommendation to developing a, a roadmap to relevance uh, to engage uh, you know broad constituencies and it was really about um, the awareness the knowledge of conservation hunters anglers what we do who we are um, you know with the end goal of having a usable product that uh, you know our organizations uh, wildlife agencies federal partners could draw from um, to to help us all achieve our goals so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out the, and then we have to move on from this, but um, 
as many hunters have expressed over the years, why why would we care? Why would we want more people to to know, you know, to get involved? We've been doing this just fine for a long time here, and they're going to step on our toes. Yeah, I, I think that is, uh, you know, one of the concerns. Um, but there's quite a bit of data, social science data out there, that, and the the nation is trending, um, and it, it, it's different. You know, some states it's trending faster than others. Uh, certainly in my state of Nevada, uh, we've seen uh, a lot more urbanization. And with that urbanization is a lack of awareness of who we are and what we do. Um, and so, it, you know, it, if we don't pay attention um, to our own uh, relevance, we risk becoming irrelevant and it goes right back to those uh the competition with those other programs at our state legislatures uh, on capitol hill um you know whether whether we recognize it or not um our activities our our passions our pursuits are subject uh to the acceptance approval and sometimes funding of, of others and and the more awareness and appreciation that we can foster along the way the more we can safeguard uh, those passions and and our our traditions you know i sat in on a session earlier this week um colorado has been doing a fairly deep dive into broadening funding sources for conservation parks recreation um and uh, and they, they were telling us that they, they did some interviews with some mountain bikers and, and hikers to try to find out things that they would have tolerance, you know, to help support public, you know, paying into a system to help support. And the people had no idea. They, they kind of knew who Colorado Parks and Wildlife were, but they didn't have any clue about what they did and how that was relevant to what they enjoyed, the, the mountain biking or the hiking. And, and so there really is a communications and awareness, a public relations um, hill to climb, for sure, for state agencies, state fish yeah, and wildlife agencies. Yeah, just, just, I mean, so many people take wildlife for granted, and they don't realize that it's really a, a byproduct of the efforts of, of hunters and anglers in so many instances and, and just understanding that there are a lot of people in the public that take that for granted and think that, you know, it would be there, you know, regardless that it doesn't take management um, is, is a problem in and of itself. And just helping those people understand that the abundance of wildlife in this country is a consequence of management and conservation uh, by hunters, anglers, conservation organizations like the Mule Deer Foundation and others. Now, Brian, we're going to shift gears a little bit. I missed you this year at the Deer and Elk Workshop. I did. I actually missed the Nevada. How how, how are your big game doing in Nevada? So our big game in in Nevada are, are largely doing very well. Um, you know, there's certainly a perception that our mule deer are at levels below what they have been historically. Uh, there are parts of our history where we did have much higher, probably double the amount of deer that we have in uh, in Nevada right now. Um, but the populations are doing well, um, especially if anybody that's interested in hunting. We've got, uh, you know, the, the buck-to-doe ratios are very healthy. The, uh, um, we've seen good recruitment. We're getting good moisture right now. Uh, a lot of it's uh, coming in the form of snow, which can be a little bit challenging. But uh, it's also been fairly warm, so it's been melting off pretty rapidly. So we're hoping for favorable conditions. challenge with that, of course, is that with with Nevada's ecosystems and some of the changes we've seen historically there, um, we also run the risk of having an awful lot more cheatgrass on the landscape, which can, again, bring up the concerns for wildfires. Looking at other species, you know, our elk populations are doing well, our antelope populations are doing very well. Um, it's, uh, you know, things are, things are looking 
pretty favorable in, in Nevada right now. now. Some of those challenges you talk about, um, you're mostly a public land state, so you have to have that great coordination with the Forest Service and BLM. But, you know, you guys experienced some big fires over the last few years. What's that done to our habitat? That's a very good point. Um, and when you, you know, when I say things are looking favorable, you know, we, we certainly have, um, you know, good, good conditions right now. Um, we've had two years in a row where we've had over a million acres burn. Um, that has catastrophic effects on sage grouse, on pygmy rabbits, on, uh, it can have really negative effects on uh, the mule deer. Um, sagebrush is not something that responds well to fire. If you have fires that occur above six, 7,000 feet, we often have favorable conditions that follow. But those lower elevation fires, we, we often wind up replacing sagebrush with cheatgrass. Cheatgrass, of course, is really fire adapted. It, it's a fast, uh, it comes in rapidly. It's not native. Um, it's something that was introduced, and as a result of that, you wind up changing those landscapes, and especially for those species that are so dependent upon sagebrush e ecosystems um, and communities that, you know, it, it can be really catastrophic for those. Yeah. Tony, you, I, I want to just play, you made a comment in, either in a conversation or one of your speeches about flying over when there was one of the big fires that you had, and the people near you making a comment, oh, it's just the sagebrush, nothing lives there. That, again, goes to the, the relevancy and the people's recognition of the importance because that's, I mean, clearly not true. There's 300-plus yeah. species that yeah, depend on those sagebrush systems. There's over 350 species that, that rely on that, that ecosystem. But it is, you know, the flyover country, if you will, and, and you're exactly right. You know, it's, it's frustrating when people don't recognize the importance of that habitat in particular to, to, to mule deer, but the whole host of other species. And so that, that's exactly right. That's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about relevance. It's just a broader awareness. We're not trying to take everybody who's an anti-hunter and make them a supporter of hunting. We're not trying to convert everybody to go be a hunter. But just having a broader awareness of conservation uh, species and the habitats on which they depend is going to help us deliver effective conservation. So one, one other issue that comes up, and, and I hesitate to bring this up, but I'm going to because you guys deal with this every day. Wild horse and burros. Free-ranging wild equids or feral equids, I guess, out there that ha can and I guess do have a drastic effect in certain parts of the range. Yes, um, you're absolutely correct. They certainly can have an effect in certain parts of the range. And they're another aspect of the environment that are valued by uh, certain segments of the public. And the challenge is, um, just with any other species that, we that, are, that are actively managed, we can have a, a certain number of, of feral horses or wild horses on the landscape, but it's important that those numbers be at a manageable level that doesn't wind up having an impact on um, other wild species, that doesn't have an effect on our water resources, doesn't have an effect on the landscape and the, uh, the wild, uh, the scenic areas, uh, the habitat that um, livestock depend upon in order to be able to be raised. Um, even on uh, human health and safety where collisions occur on, on uh, highways. And so, yeah, it's a huge issue. I think Nevada in a lot of ways is kind of the, the epicenter of a lot of those issues because of, there's so many horses um, and, and equids on the landscape within Nevada. If we could manage it within a, a, the appropriate management levels that uh, BLM, for instance, has established, we'd be far better off and, and in a far better place to be able to manage everything 
uh, the way we, it would benefit everything. Well, and the cheatgrass invasions impact that too, obviously, because you have less forage for everything, uh, you know, for the deer, for the horses, for, for the elk, for the, you know, for the cattle. So, so when you have a growing population of a feral animal and then these other populations, it's trying to balance that and then having declining forage because of the, the fires and then the cheatgrass invasions, it's a challenge. Exactly. That, it exacerbates the, the challenges we have um, when we have cheatgrass invasions into new areas. Um, you know, trying to, and um, you know, most of our livestock producers understand the, the need to manage grazing ungulates at a level that allow for populations to uh, to the habitat to be there to support things you know the whole concept of of trying to manage rangelands at it for an acceptable use and that's something we try to look at with our our elk management plans when we were developing our elk uh, harvest recommendations we look uh, we cooperate with our uh, the land management agencies, the sporting groups with the uh, um, producers, We're trying to find an equitable level mm-hmm. that we can manage that at. And we lack the tools to be able to do that with, with the horses. Um, no, one, no one disputes that they can be beautiful animals and that they can be, uh, you know, there's certainly um, a level at which they could be managed for, but it's a real challenge to uh, get the rest of it to operate effectively when we have um, unmanaged levels. Yeah, and I might, I might just add a little bit of data. Uh, presently, Nevada has more horses than we have feral ever horses. had, feral horses, than we have ever had in, in our history. Uh, they continue to build. They continue to reproduce. Uh, the holding facilities are at or near capacity. Uh, they're just, there simply are not an adequate number of viable uh, off-ramps to, to take horses off the federally administered lands. And, and do something with them. At the same time, we manage livestock uh, according to numbers and season of use. We manage our wild game and with, with population objectives. Uh, we have, <coughs> excuse me, we have appropriate management levels determined for the for those wild, free roaming uh, horses, um, but we don't have the tools available to us to manage at at those levels. Uh, you brought up forage. When we look at how uh, a horse forages relative to how a mule deer forages, you know, a mule deer is a highly selective herbivore taking specific species and specific parts of specific piece, uh, species where horses are volume eaters. I mean, there's a reason they call them hay burners. Uh, <laughs> they just eat volume. They have a single stomach, just a large fermentation vat. They're, they're called a monogastric fermenter, and they just eat he volume. He sounds like an ex-biologist. Actually, ex- actually ex- Steve, yeah. I was thinking about the large stuff. No, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, large fermenter. <laughs> yeah. So they just, they just pack it away, and on average, a, a horse will eat 10 times the the volume of forage that a mule deer will that's just a well and, and horses graze down they 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 trim all the way down to the root level so it, the, the regeneration uh, of the forage is harder as well teeth on both sides of the jaw yeah, well, yeah. yeah. and their growth rate is astronomical while we're still trying to maintain our the growth rate on our our mule deer populations and and some of our antelope populations you know, right now we're seeing that the doubling rate for our wild horse populations are about every four years. Yeah. And they live, what, 30 years? They can live to be quite well, quite old. Probably I, not in the wild, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. That, not very often 30, but um, kind of brings up another point of, you know, things that affect their survival. Um, they certainly uh, are, being big-bodied animals, they certainly have the ability to avoid a lot of predation that 
smaller bodied animals like mule deer are not able to avoid. Well, the other one of the things I've observed in, in Wyoming and a couple other states is the territoriality around water holes. Um, those horses will come in and that stallion or the, or the lead mare will then not allow any other wildlife or anything else to drink. And, you know, in, in those dry climates, it's pretty important that they get to that water. Yeah, I think that's actually probably the, the a likely uh, greater impact uh, in, in the Great Basin in Nevada uh, than maybe the forage in, in the wetter years uh, where it's aggressive defense of, you know, limited water sources. I mean, we're already really dry. You know, we, we have an aggressive water development program to augment water for, for wildlife. Uh, but in those natural seeps and, and streams and bogs where uh, those horses can can stand, they, they aggressively defend it to the detriment of elk, deer, pronghorn. Well, we hope Congress helps you out because they helped with the Wild Horse and Burrow Act, created some limitations on the ability to manage these equids. And, you know, we really hope that you guys work with the BLM and Forest Service to get your numbers because I think our wildlife depends on it. Um, so something happened here in the last year, Ryan, and, and maybe you guys can shed light on why this happened. Uh, there appears to be an effort to regulate trail cams through the commission. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. That's a huge tool these days for scouting. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take a stab at that. And, and this was uh, a concern brought forward by several of our counties, especially counties in you know, some of the drier areas, again, with really limited water. And you know, Nevada doesn't have an abundance of, of water, uh, nor do we have an abundance of, of trees in certain areas, which makes you know, visibility uh, of animals fairly high and and we were seeing competition on those limited water sources for you know, users of, of trail cameras and i've and heard there's water holes that have like 20 30 trail cams posted on it yeah 30 plus. yeah <laughs> absolutely um <laughs> and a so picture it, of another camera it, it, there was a, a couple issues there where um you know the disturbance um of animals as, as people were coming and going from those cameras. And you can imagine if you had, you know, and we have, we have some pretty compelling photos of, you know, 27 cameras on a single tree or in every fence post around a, a water hole with a camera on it. And so there was a lot of a traffic in and out of those areas. And we just felt, uh, you know, as that, as that concern was continually brought forward by, you know, some of our, uh, customers and, and hunters, um, the commission uh, was asked to address it. Um, they looked at their authorities and and implemented a, uh, a regulation that would prohibit the use of trail cameras on waters for certain times of the year. Again, with the uh, with the intent of providing those animals some relief, those animals the ability to get to and from water. It was it was completely uh, possible for a hunter to put cameras on all the waters uh, within a, a management area and conceivably have a photo of every animal in, in that area. And then, again, you have a scenario and, where and people some could of them sell. Do, they do real-time, right? They're sending a, a signal that, that you can sit it on. That technology do, does exist. Um, again, that was addressed in, in the regulation. But, you know, where it becomes really problematic is where those individuals have those photos and they have GPS coordinates of an identified animal and then sell that. And, and we were seeing uh, a business, businesses established that were selling the locations of animals. And then so there's, there's a couple issues um, you know, the, the hunter ethic piece, and it goes right back to that relevance piece. Right. If we want to have the support for our actions as hunters and anglers, I think we need to act in a responsible and ethical manner. 
So one last item, and I, Tony, I know you need to get going. Um, most po folks don't know Nevada is the most mountainous state in the country. If you would hammer it down flat, it'd be huge, bigger than Alaska. So you get seasonal movements of animals from the Sky Islands down to the valley bottoms. Um, tell us a little bit about what some of the challenges are there, and just so you all know, um, the Mule Deer Foundation, as we expand our mule, our migration initiative, is going to be moving into Nevada to help you guys out with some of these issues. So what are the challenges of managing migration routes, and what do you guys really need help with uh, from, a, from a division standpoint so that those animals can do what they need to do? Well, you know, not only do they move elevationally, but we've got some of the largest long-range movements when you start looking at um, their ability to move across the landscape, um, some of it from the north to south standpoint as well. So we've already uh, been working with the Department of Transportation, Nevada Department of Transportation. We've got uh, several uh, migration corridors identified. We've been able to um, actually implement a, a number of uh, overpasses over the interstates, for instance. Um, and this, you know, a lot of people look at those and think that they're just a benefit to the animals, but they're also a benefit to the human health and safety because we reduce the number of collisions. We have a reduction in uh, um, risk to uh, human health because of that. Um, in addition, we've got a number of places, uh, mineral um, extraction, uh, oil and mineral um, is something that's a big thing within uh, within Nevada. And so trying to understand those uh, movements so that we can uh, work with um, oil and mineral country companies as they're uh, developing their exploration and, and extraction exercises, we can find ways that we can um, actually get what we need from uh, to help the, the U.S. economy and at the same time maintain our, our, our uh, migration corridors um, so that we've got uh, better places, uh, better options so that we can maintain those migrations. Those migrations are incredibly important. Um, they're, especially for mule deer, they, they follow the same routes, they go to the same places. Um, they need to have those protections. And challenges, again, coming back to the wildfire challenges, if they come back to an area we know where they're going to be, uh, we, can, we can look at the really high priority areas and, and try to look at those for uh, protection and uh, restoration of the habitats, rehabilitation of the habitats in the event of a, uh, an uncontrolled fire that, uh, that we didn't expect. Um, you know, developments of housings. Uh, you know, mm. one of the challenges that uh, people look at, you know, they, they don't fully recognize with Nevada. They say, wow, you know, 85 to 86 percent of the states, you know, n not public, not is public. It's not private. Yet you look at where people develop in the first places where people settle, it's going to be those high quality habitats yep. because they're productive. There's water there. And so that's really becomes critical. Same reason the animals love it? Yeah, the humans exactly. Love it. <laughs> yeah. And just the fact that the animals are there, you know, it adds to the value of our lives. That's why we're attracted to it as well. True, true. Yeah, I'm, I, I might add the first step there, Steve, I, I think is really delineating those areas, understanding where those areas are. And, and I know we've had a strong partnership with the Mule Deer Foundation, uh, you know, on the science side of things and, and projects to, to treat habitats. And with the, with the advent of, you know, GPS technology and collars, uh, we've really been able to refine these, these corridors and these stopovers and, and really having accurate maps is the first step. And then once you know where they are, then you can, you know, kind of dissect it and, and look at, at opportunities, whether it be fences or, or other potential hurdles. 
So I, before we sign off, there was one other thing that um, you and I were talking yesterday about your new online licensing system. Do you want to give us a quick overview on some of the changes and, and some of the benefits and some of the things that you've seen out of it? Sure, absolutely. Um, and, and thanks for bringing that up, Jody. Um, there's been just a couple quick pieces. Uh, license simplification effort uh, two years ago at our legislative session went from 27 different license options down to eight. Uh, remove the stamps, uh, combine many of that to simplify that for, for hunters. Um, put out a request for proposal, selected a, a new vendor. Uh, the, the department's using uh, Kalkamai Enterprises, and, and we redesigned our online application system. Again, you can do it from a mobile device, from a tablet. Um, you know, it's <clears throat> we think it's simplified. Uh, it's it's come at a significant savings, uh, cost savings for sportsmen, and it has uh, increased uh, capabilities, utilities. And last year, uh, you know, as a all hands on deck to stand it up. This year, we added a whole lot of bells and whistles. So if you haven't uh, been on there yet, uh, you know, feel free uh, endowlicensing.com. Uh, get on there, check it out. And uh, I think people will really be impressed with the added functionality. We've seen a 29% increase in, in hunting license sales just uh, year over really? year increase. Are you all a full, feel or a full price submission or is it an application fee? It's an uh, application fee, and you can either choose to purchase a license only if successfully drawn, uh, or if you want to accrue bonus points, uh, a purchase of the license is required. Great. Great. Well, thank you for that, because I, I know that was a big thing for you guys, and, and it's great to hear that it's rolling out. And, and, you know, obviously there's always a learning curve, particularly from some of your traditional users. Um, but I think from what you've described, it is, you know, it is significant improvement um, and will make life easier, which is kind of the goal. It should not be so hard <laughs> to get a license <laughs> and to get out and, and yeah. do what you want to do. It should, yeah. should not be a barrier to participation. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And based on what we're seeing, you know, our perception is that it's better, but based on what we're seeing, we're getting a lot more people playing in the game. So, so Brian, more deer, bigger bucks, bigger bulls, right? You know, we're... we're <laughs> and easier to get your license. <laughs> What's not to like about Nevada? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's always a challenge. We have a limited um, number of, of resources, and we have a lot of people that have an interest in it. And so we try to, to provide the, uh, an optimal level, and uh, it's something that we really... It's a careful management action. I've seen some really big bucks come out of Nevada. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so thank you guys very much. I know this is a busy conference. It's the last day. We're all a little uh, little brain fried after it, but uh, we really appreciate you carving out. And in Jody's it. case, it doesn't take much frying. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, thanks. Uh, but thank you very much for your time. So you. until the next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda. And if you are in Nevada and get lucky at the tables, Please take some of those winnings and give it to Tony and the department so we can have good mule deer <laughs> and good wildlife there. So thank you, folks, and thank you for talking mule deer. Thank you, guys. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.